So, um, as you guys know, John has been very systematic in taking us through Scripture. We go completely through books. He doesn't really preach just on topics and bounce around. We've gone completely through whole books, going in-depth, uh, finding out the context, the history, and all that kind of really cool stuff. Um, I'm not going to do that, just so that you know. He, uh, I think it's pretty well covered. Um, what I'm going to do, actually, is engage you in a thought. That's kind of the whole goal, is just to make you kind of think about something. And hopefully you can kind of think about it throughout the week. It's a thought that could possibly prove helpful to provide a place to store the biblical information, which by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is bestowed upon us through John, his humble servant. So, I'm basically building a rack, not Iraq, a rack, that you could take all of the nuggets that he gives you and kind of hang them on, so you can kind of find them. That's at least the goal, whether I'm successful or not is another story. I'm also really not going to teach you anything today either. So I'm not really teaching. Because, uh, for an example, let's say I was going to teach a message on heaven. But if by when I said the word heaven, every single one of you had a different idea of what that would be. Some of you might think it's better than hell. Some of you might think that heaven starts here. That getting involved in God's kingdom, they see heaven all the way around, all the way around them. Some people view heaven as a place where you sit and play harps. So if I'm teaching about heaven, and, and when I say the word heaven, every, every one of you sees a different picture, you guys will end up kind of getting different messages out of the same message, which is kind of a little bit like relativism, which is another subject I'm not going to discuss either. <laughs> I'm also not going to be a salesman and sell you on God, religion, anything like that. I'm not going to convince you that you need a particular thing. I'm actually a horrible salesman. I couldn't sell a lifeboat to a Titanic passenger. <laughs> and besides, if you're going to be a salesman, you don't start off the first five minutes telling you all the things the product won't do, <laughs> which is what I've just done. So there you have it. I'm basically going to ask you an eight-word question. That's it. So those of you who think we're going to be done early, it's going to take me about 45 minutes to explain the eight-word question. So... That's not what we use Sundays about, is getting out early so we can throw balls at each other. <laughs> Hopefully that, though, you can dwell on this question throughout the week. And this question will require quite a bit of honesty from you guys if you really want to get the most out of it and face it. Some of you may not like the question. I know that I don't, which is why I couldn't really get it out of my head. So you guys ready? Would you rather be loved or feel loved? I'm going to let it linger here so you guys can really think about the question. And if you guys kind of feel uncomfortable thinking in church, I will provide you with a nice setting. You can uh, think about it over while watching a beautiful sunset, for instance. Now think about it. Would you rather be or feel loved? They're not exclusive terms. In other words, you can have both. You can feel loved and be loved at the same time, or you can have one or the other. So I want you to think about what's the difference. 
And if uh, you guys think a lot when you're jogging, here's a jogging area for you to think about the question at. How does this relate to you and others also? The bridges that you build between your relationships. How you view love and whether you choose to feel loved or to be loved. That affects your relationships with other people. Kind of try to get on a mind, think about it, try to answer it yourself before I give you the clues. How does it relate to the way that you get approval with other people? The things that you do that make you feel all right inside and kind of help you get through the day? And also with you and God. How does the way that you uh, view love and whether you would rather feel like you're loved or actually be loved, how does that affect your relationship with God? And God's will and your life. Notice I didn't say God's will on your life. Because God's will has already established what he wants. He wants to make all of us like Jesus, perfect, to be like him, to dwell with him forever. That's his will. It's and our life in that we get to kind of choose whether we want to participate in that or not. It's so much easier to say God's will for your life, God's plan for your life, because then it sounds like we just can kind of kick back and wait for God to do all his magic. But a lot of us, a lot of it has to do with our willingness. Many times being loved feels like mourning. Going back to the Beatitudes and John's uh, message with that, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who see that they really got nothing to offer, who kind of see their brokenness and their bankruptness, if that's a real word. Youth don't really concern themselves with bankrupt yet. So they got to charge up a bunch of stuff on their credit cards first. <laughs> but basically, people who love you are not content to see you stay where you are and who you are. They want to call you up to a higher level. People who really love you, as the army says, be all you can be. They kind of see you as this kind of knucklehead that gets fired from McDonald's and they want to turn you into this like mighty warrior for whatever. So kind of here's another example from Restore because since we're on that from Landon, I'm not content to have my window look like this. That's just not cool. Somebody else was. It was propped up with a 2x4 and filled in with Bondo. But really, what I really want is this. And that's kind of what God working in our lives means. Many times people throw that around. What's God doing in your life? Oh man, is God working in your life? Meaning kind of in terms of blessings or that your life is going well. God working in your life is turning it from rusty junk to this. Which means usually God is going to have a saw in his hand. God's working in your life means turning you from what you were without him into who Christ is and into who he is. That's what God's whole point is for your life and what his work is. It's not this job that you're going to get or whatever else that you kind of view for your own life and how you view blessings from God. But God wants nothing less for you than to make you like Jesus. And that's what I mean, nothing less, is all of the plans we have for, for ourselves are so much smaller in comparison. So is it fair to say that God loves us in this sense? Because we always say God loves us. And if God loves us and wants to cut all the rust out of our lives, is cutting all the rust out of our lives actually love? And does that always feel like love? 
And the thing, once you, get, once you start asking the question, is would you rather be loved or feel loved? And we're talking about definitions of love. You, the, uh, another topic will quickly come up is who gets to define it? Whose perception of love is the one we're going to go by? Which one is reality? Which brings us to another topic. Is perception reality? See what I mean? It would take me a little while to explain the question. Has anyone not heard the term? Perfect. Because if anyone raised their hands, you would be lying. Because if you would have been able to raise your hand to answer, you would have heard me ask the question which contained the term. It was a trick question. <laughs> and that's what we're all about is humiliating the youth with trick questions. So that's kind of what Youth Sunday does. And what is feeling loved? Unfortunately, we do need to go a little bit into philosophy, but since I kind of am not going to really talk about anything or teach, it will be lightly, uh, lightly brushed against. Um, perception and reality can kind of go into two categories. One of them is the tree fall in the woods kind, and one of them is a human resources kind. By the tree fall in the woods kind, I'm kind of talking about the philosophical view of what is reality? A lot of people, I think it's a uh, philosopher was Kant, the German guy, but I didn't really look it up. I believe that's who it is. But for the youth, we don't really need to be that accurate because they aren't paying attention anyway. <laughs> if you want to look it up, that's cool, but it is a philosophy thing. It's kind of like the whole statement, if a tree falls in the woods and no one is there to hear it, does it make a sound? meaning that his whole philosophy was things aren't real until a human being perceives it because everything you perceive is through your, your brain and your senses. So basically things don't exist until you observe them. That is one kind of perception being reality. The nature of whether things are actually true or not or if everybody's observation defines the truth. The human resources kind is the kind where if, if like when the... When this kind of combines both of them. When, when all of mankind thought the world was flat, was it actually flat or was it always a sphere like it's always been? The tree fall in the woods kind would say if people perceived it as flat, then in reality the world was flat, which doesn't really make sense. The world was what it was, whether people were wrong. But the human resources kind is, even though they were all mistaken and that the world was flat, it impacted the way they lived their lives. They never sailed very far from the shores. They had no trade routes, really, because they didn't want to sail off the edge. Some uh, artist was thinking about the concept and so moved, painted a beautiful painting of a ship falling off the edge of the, of the ocean, and then people saw that, and there was the proof. Oh, I've seen the edge of the world, this artist's depiction. So the whole world basically lived their lives as though the world was flat, even though it isn't. And how that kind of plays into our lives is if somebody perceives that you were kind of being uncool and rude, even though you weren't, and they are subsequently offended, the reality was is that they were offended, regardless of if what you meant by it or not, and you're going to have to deal with it as that sort of reality. Is that making sense? If someone perceives that you're rude and they are hurt, the reality is they're hurt, not that they were misinformed about your, your rudeness or your intentions. You have to consider both meanings of the phrase when, like, wondering about love or love exists. Because on the tree fall in the woods kind, is there a such thing as what love actually is, regardless of what we all define it as, which would be the tree fall in the woods kind, and the human resources kind, does my misunderstanding of love affect the way that I live? 
Because those are two separate things to consider. If love is user-definable, then I can sit down now because we can all make up our own message out of this. If it's not, and love is a particular thing, we have to kind of figure out how we feel about it and what it means to us and maybe where we've gone wrong in our, in our understandings and perceptions of it. There's kind of two things. Number one, love, or God in this case, because God is love, exists quite differently, uh, independently of our feelings. God is love, but love isn't God. Those two terms are not interchangeable. Kind of our culture views love as God, and God as love fits into that kind of description. That's kind of why a lot of people are tolerant of church people, because as long as we're loving. But God is love, but love isn't God, if that makes sense. And two, we may have a completely different set of actions depending upon what we perceive and how we feel. It's kind of like two sides of that same coin. Um, I can explain it a little more with the analogy of the elephant. I don't know if you guys have heard the analogy of the... Uh, I don't even know where it comes from. Let's just say ancient Chinese because they're full of that thing and I think they have elephants over there. But uh, basically there's like five blind guys and they're all like go up to an elephant and... The first guy feels the trunk and he says, oh, the elephant is much like a serpent. And then one of them feels the leg and he's like, no, the elephant is much like a tree. And another guy feels the ear, which I guess he would say the elephant is much like a ladder and a leaf because he couldn't really reach the ear without the ladder. And he's blind, so he wouldn't know that it was a ladder. So, And then the other guy finds the tail. So basically that whole argument is usually kind of used to prove that truth is relative, that everyone gets a different uh, understanding of what they perceive. But in reality, the elephant actually represents the absolute nature of truth or love to fit with our topic. The elephant is what it is if the blind man never existed and never even came up to bother it to touch it. The elephant didn't become the elephant when the blind man touched it. It doesn't really require their input to exist. But the blind men's perceptions of the elephant, however mistaken they would be or partially correct, will influence the way they think about elephants forever. The guy that felt the trunk is going to constantly be talking about the elephant snake that can float off the ground for some reason, the flying hover snake or whatever. So differing perceptions yield different conclusions, and also different conclusions will yield different life priorities. Depending upon how you view the world and things in it, will kind of determine what priorities you're setting up for your life and where you're spending your time at, if that makes sense. The scary thing that we kind of need to be aware of when we're talking about stuff like this is when we have discussions about love and you hear the word love, everybody thinks we're talking about the same thing, and the terms are never defined. So I'll sit here and they'll talk about love. Someone will answer talking about love, and we could be talking about two completely different things, and we both think that we're in agreement with each other. That's kind of why you need to define them and kind of delve a little deeper. Another way to ask the question of would you rather be loved or feel loved, would you actually prefer to be able to sing or to think that you're a good singer? There's two words for that, American Idol. The first, the first uh, episodes are the best because that's when you get all the people who think they're awesome and absolutely have no clue how horrible they are. I mean, these people shouldn't even be speaking, much less trying to speak in pitch. <laughs> so 
And another thing is, is I know people who are some of the best musicians I have ever met or played with, and they always think they're, they're horrible. Oh, man, dude, I'm sorry. Did I overplay? Oh, I'm sorry. I totally messed up that thing. That's my, one of my favorite uh, guitar players ever is this guy, Alan Holdsworth, who hated everything he'd ever played. He can't listen to any of his recordings ever, and he's amazing. So it's kind of which one would you rather be? Would you rather be the clueless one who just thinks they're rocking and is absolutely horrible, but they are content, they're like, woo, I'm doing it. Or the guy that's just really doing it, but doesn't feel like it ever. Or you can maybe be one of those lucky, uh, balanced people that can experience both frequently, and then I envy you. And a lot of times what feels like love actually isn't love at all. That's kind of another thing to when you're considering which one you'd rather be. Uh, the consolation of friends when you need correction. Let's say, this is cool, it's Youth Sunday, so I get to use all youth analogies. They can follow along through your, uh, your vigorous lives. If, let's say you guys had a problem with alcohol or drinking, and you, it's kind of like, well, this is out of control, I totally got to quit. And all of your friends at school are kind of the partying crowd. So what happens if you're like, you make the statement, I'm, I'm quitting, I'm done, but then you're at this party and all your friends are like, dude, come on, man, just have one, be cool. And they'll put their arms around you, they'll give you the noogies, the high fives, and as soon as you're like, can't handle it anymore, pop it open, they're like, woo, and they're hugging you, and they're all your best friends, and you're like, yeah, yeah, and then everyone's laughing and joking. That's not love, but that feels like love. It feels like you have this camaraderie with your friends, but actually they don't really care if you're destroying yourself or that you know that your life's a mess and you're making these efforts to, to get on the right track or to better it. Um, everyone's seen the battered spouse on Cops, where like the cops come and go to arrest the dude and then she like drops all the charges. No, no, he loves me, he loves me, I love him. There's something that's motivating her to do that, and it's not for the TV ratings. Like, I want to get on Cops, and this is how you get on it. If the guy comes and arrests you, and he's got the camera, just, like, tell him you love him, and then they'll for sure air it. That's kind of, I don't think that's what they're going for. I think it's a misdirected understanding of what love is. Uh, parents spoiling their children is another one. Parents refusing to correct their children when they need it. It feels like you're being cool. Or you're giving your kids everything they want, but what you're really doing is limiting their ability to ever be happy in their adult life. Because you're giving them the sense that the world owes them stuff. And then they're going to grow up with a sense of entitlement, and when the world doesn't just cater to them and let them get away with anything, they're just going to be unhappy, disappointed, thinking that everything in the world is wrong and against them. When the problem was, initially, when you were raising them, a displaced idea of what love is. It felt loving when you were giving things to your kids. It made you feel a certain way, but it's not being loving. It's kind of following. Another one is gang camaraderie. They think they have a family and a community, and that, that's their bros, and that's their, they go through life together, but that's not love either. They're mutually destructive. They're destroying each other's lives together, but feeling like they have this family that they're willing to even kill and die for. So then, what does the healthy love look like? I've kind of told everything that it's not and that stuff. And this isn't going to be a be-all and end-all definition. 
I'm just uh, trying to trying to define my question, and since I'm the one asking it, I guess I get to choose the terms for defining it. It can't be wrong because it's my question, right? <laughs> and if it proves unhelpful to you at all, don't bother with it. This is more to be an aid, a rack, so to speak, to hang up other things. If the rack doesn't fit in your room, you don't have to buy it. There's kind of two of them. One I'll call calling up. Love isn't defined into two terms, and it's not nearly this simple. But for my purposes, I will make it so, because it's youth. They're slow. Just kidding. <laughs> and the second one is calling out. They're kind of two lanes to the same road. And I picked this because it looks kind of European. And we haven't seen a picture of a European road in a sermon for a long time. So youth do need things different and mixed up a bit or they get bored. Um, both can fall under the definition of love. And both can feel completely different. Being called up to something and also called out on something. Also, your particular mood, how many hours of sleep you got, how much stress you have, what your natural temperament is, your blood sugar, which is for me, if I don't eat and I get caught up and I'm working on something. A lot of times what feels like my wife being loving to me, actually I don't feel it as loving because I haven't eaten. And then I'm not very loving back. But I think I am. Yeah, so it kind of does differ. Um, what we're going to do also is kind of do church a little bit Lutheran style. I grew up in the Lutheran church, and the last time I've ever participated in it was when I was little. And since it's Youth Sunday, we do get to define kind of what we do. So I thought it'd be cool to kind of do that Lutheran thing again, where the pastor never reads the Bible. They always have, uh, well, dot, dot, dot. They always have like someone else that's like the scripture readers read it from a different podium. And I always thought that that was cool because like he'd stand back and then the light would go on on the other one and then someone else would come up and kind of like treat the scripture like it's different. And I thought, oh, that was kind of cool, but I hadn't really seen it since then. So uh, we're going to actually do that. We're going to start with the story of Gideon, who was a really good example of someone who God called up. Basically, calling up means seeing the potential and seeing where somebody should be similar to that restore picture, seeing that rusty window and knowing what you want it to be and being able to invest the time and resources in order to make it that way. God has been in the habit of doing that with humans ever since they started taking notes, which is called the Bible. Now, Gideon is found in the, sto uh, the story is found in Judges, but if I just popped in right in the middle and said, here's Gideon, he did this, it would be okay. So what we want to do is go back a little bit and find out what was going on during the time of Gideon. A little, like, backstory, so to speak. So the first reader can come up now.
So the Midianites are these jerks, essentially. They were like, only reason for raiding the land was to impoverish it. They just wanted to go over there and break stuff. And it really sucked for Israel. It was really, really hard for them. They were not doing well as a nation or as a people. They were kind of just beat. So now let's fast forward to Gideon. So that's definitely puts in the calling up category. God called him a mighty warrior. And there was no mighty warriors. The Israelites were just kind of like, this is really lame. These people are just here. They couldn't even count them. They were like swarms of locusts invading their land and killing everything. And then God comes up to the guy who's the weakest, who's in the weakest tribe. And he's the weakest dude in his clan. So he was what we would call a nobody, uh, no way. You're not mighty warrior. And God calls him mighty warrior before he even knew any of that himself. That's kind of what we mean by calling up, is that as God sees us, we see others. We can look at people and see their potential and see what God has for them and be willing to invest the time. Because I guarantee you, if you saw Gideon and said, you're going to be a mighty warrior... You wouldn't just say that and then walk off and expect God to magically do the work. This theme is found in movies, like, pretty much throughout the time we've made movies, about the guy who's, like, destined for this great thing. He doesn't know it. Someone else comes to him, a prophet, or, you know, depends if you're Lord of the Rings, a magic guy of some kind with a little robe, and kind of sees what he's going to be. Or if it's the best movie ever, The Karate Kid, it's Mr. Miyagi. But basically, the whole movie plays as you watch this guy kind of learn their skill and kind of... But you know in the end they're going to be destined to this great thing, so you don't really worry about that they're going to die because you know there's like seven movies and the same guys in them all. And this is only movie two, so you know he's going to make it. But it's kind of that same way where... <laughs> Come on, who's dancing? That's weird. Music kind of shifts my brain weird. There, I think I'm back. So um, that's how we're to love people. And even more, Jesus said, that's how we're to love our enemies. You mean we're to actually invest in our enemies and see who they can be, not who they are. Don't view them as what they have done. Don't view that guy as a murderer. View that guy as a human being who you are there to love. So many often we categorize people by their sins. 
In fact, oh, she's a prostitute. No, she's Debbie or whatever her name happens to be. That doesn't really define who she is and that's not how God sees her. It will take some investment and a lot of care to build that into somebody. But that's kind of what we're, what we're called to. And it's worthy uh, to note also that the person who is being called up does not always enjoy being pushed. They, are not, they don't come up to you going, Oh, thank you for investing in me. Nobody did. They usually get very defensive, justifying how they don't need to change. Um, if you are persistent, they will talk with all of their other friends about what a pain in the butt you're being. And they're like, what? No gratitude? No. No gratitude. They hung Jesus on the cross for it. So you can't really expect much different. In fact, everyone who lives a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's kind of what the scripture John taught on was. Be ready for it. And even us being willing to invest is very difficult. And then when we, when we finally cross that line and invest, and then the, other, the people are not so receptive, and also we have to judge our own hearts, are we investing in them because we want to bend them to the way that we want them to be because it makes our lives run better? I want you to stop doing all the things that I don't like. So don't talk back to me. Don't argue with me. Don't do this. Don't do that. Let's fix all those things rather than fix who they are. We have some examples of calling up. And uh, we have some from the New Testament as well. <clears throat> New Testament reader. But be ready. There'll be some more old. We're mixing it up. Cool. Who's your neighbor? So each of us should build up our neighbor and kind of invest in them. If you don't know who your neighbor is, start with the people you live with because they're your family. If you can actually manage with your family, I guarantee you will be massively equipped to kind of handle anything. Basically what that means is if you're to please your neighbor for their good and to build them up, that means you're the last on the totem pole by default, by choice. You willingly call the back seat, not shotgun. You willingly are, your opinion matters least according to you than does anybody else's opinion in your family, even if they're wrong or being kind of jerky. None of that stuff really plays into a part of it. It's like humbling and servant leadership. Here's another one from the New Testament. So encouragement can be a form of calling somebody up. But the reason I put this, this one in there, because I don't want you guys to stop there and go, oh, cool, I just have to like tell people attaboy, and gee, your hair smells terrific. <laughs> I'm talking about a bigger investment. You can't just say one nice thing to your family members, cross it off your list. It's more of the way you view yourself on a continual level rather than something that you do and just cross off your list. Peace and mutual edification definitely steps it up a notch over complimenting somebody. 
Because peace means that someone has got to basically take the I'm the loser role whenever there's conflict. Instead of fighting and battling over it. And it's, it's out of love, not out of apathy. So you're not, you're not disengaging from people because you don't care. You're disengaging when you do care and you really want to fire back with a really nice zinger. And you're instead doing what leads to peace and mutual edification because the way you react, they will see. What you say, especially if it's argumentative and part of the same cycle, they won't hear you. As soon as you start talking with your like uh, pre, pre-recorded sample that you've said for the last 10 years every time this comes up, immediately they're going to be recalling the sample that comes after the one that you're spouting out. And it kind of goes like that for years and years and less changed. And uh, the news is you're, you can't expect them to change it, but you can stop playing yours. So getting along in community requires energy. Being a peacemaker means putting yourself last. And you never, ever get to say the, the phrase, that's not fair, when referring to yourself. You could say, that's not fair for those kids in Africa who don't have shoes while we're so rich. You could say, that's not fair. But you can never say, something was unfair to me. Because fairness isn't the issue. It's love. And... I know this isn't like groundbreaking stuff, but life isn't fair, nor will it ever be. And in the human resources type of perception is reality. Each person will perceive that they're being fair. And you're not going to really argue. The guy who felt the elephant's trunk is not going to argue with the guy that felt the leg, that it's a tree, not a snake. They just won't ever agree on that. So kind of don't go into those patterns. But definitely it means energy. It's more about seeing a particular quality in a person that they may or may not be aware of and putting forth your own personal effort and resources to bring that out of them. Resources means energy, time, thoughts, which for me is a big one because I really enjoy my time that I can think. I never listen to music when I'm driving in the car. It's always quiet because I just love to think. I love to sort through what I have and organize my thoughts, my plans, my ideas, projects, etc. If I'm actually thinking about another person and serving them, I don't get to think about the stuff I want to, and it's a constant fight when I've spent three minutes thinking about this person and their issue. I want to really quickly go back to figuring out where I'm going to get that new extension cord that's an inch longer and other really useful tasks that are much higher up than people. <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> I only heard youth laugh, so I have to remember, this is Youth Sunday, which means there are non-youth here. They might not get it. Um, people are usually not grateful also when you invest your time and your resources. They won't appreciate your resources. Your time, a lot of times, they will think you're spending time for what you get out of it. I had this uh, friend who used to produce, actually he probably still does, I just used to talk to him. <laughs> he produces bands and uh, usually would find really bad bands and invest like tons of his time and energy. And the bands never knew, they were kind of the American Idol version, they never knew that they were bad. And then he would, put, he would spend, he would actually sell his, his own car to help pay for a recording for the band that they didn't pay for. And then the band would be like, dude, 
you're only doing this so that when we make it, you get to ride on our coattails. And he's like, are you kidding? I mean, I put a thousand hours into your project. I met with your drummer. Like every week I drove out to Irvine to help him practice because he's bad. And to be honest, he didn't get to play one note on the album because he was bad. We hired a real guy that thought he was bad, but was pretty awesome. So it's kind of like they don't appreciate your investment. He actually sold his car so he could pay for their recording, and they thought he was using them. And that's kind of how people are, and you can't say that's not fair, because it's not. It's not about that. So do you see what I, what I mean about energy? It's not just the energy to even get your mind around being willing to go there. And even deciding that, yes, this is the way I want to live. It's once you start doing it, you're going to get resistance from Satan, from the people themselves, from your own body being tired and, have, and all the own stuff that you need to do. We have some more New Testament examples. This is kind of more what I'm getting at. The cornerstone isn't something you just pull out of a field and throw on the ground and go, there's the cornerstone. It implies kind of that some work and effort has to be put into it. It also implies that a building needs to be built. Because a cornerstone in the field and there's no building is basically just a rock in a field. It's Why name it? It implies the structure that needs to be built. And it's a stone that someone invested energy and resources to turn from a rock in a field into a cornerstone and then from a cornerstone into a beautiful cathedral. The taller it is and the more ornate it is, the more effort it takes. The more effort you put into it, the more beautiful it becomes. Similar with people. The thing that's cool about this is here's the view from the top of the tower. When you think about when this was built, which was a long time ago. I didn't look it up. This was a view that people of that day had never seen. It was basically a fulfillment of the human dream to fly. Humans never got to see, like they didn't know how to build tall bridges or anything tall. If you were on a mountain, you kind of saw landscape as it went down. But to see your own area, I mean, they didn't see obviously modern bridges and buildings, but it was akin to flying to them to see something like that. So those kind of energies and the, the spiritual significance of buildings like that were huge to those people. We just kind of look at it as like, oh, that was cool. How much does it cost to get in? Where's parking? And is there lunch or in Starbucks nearby? There's probably actually a Starbucks in that cathedral now. <laughs> and the part that I really like is the cornerstone that it refers to as one that the builders rejected. It's the one that wasn't good enough. It's the one that they passed on. That is the one that God chooses. That's what's awesome about God is he chooses the stuff that man doesn't choose. So you don't really have to have all everything together and be this shining example of some, someone that has lots of potential. God pretty much chooses those without potential. 
And the life of David is a really awesome example of this. He was basically a, a rejected cornerstone because Jesus came from the lineage of him. That was all part of who it set up. When uh, God said that uh, Israel needed a new king, because God said the old one, just we're not, that's not going to work no more. We need a new one. He sent a prophet, Samuel, and back in the Old Testament, the prophets were basically the spokespeople of God. When they spoke, it was God speaking. They kind of spoke what God was saying. Not a very good job to have in the Old Testament, I might add. Well, depends on what your values are. I guess God in God's kingdom, it's an awesome job to have, but your life's going to really be difficult. He wasn't, David wasn't even brought forth to Samuel for consideration. When Samuel said, God's calling a king out of your, out of your family. Let's go to 1 Samuel 6, 16. So he makes the great out of the least. He didn't even, he was like, bring all your sons, I'm going to choose a king. Oh, here they all are. The one that, yeah, David doesn't matter. He's, he, no, no one's going to pick him. That's the one the Lord used. God also calls out, not only up. Because we've got to go back in history a little bit to find out why God wanted a new king. Because God basically set up King Saul as the king and said, you're going to be the king of Israel. This is awesome. You're going to be like my guy. But Saul didn't really do that good of a job, and God actually had to call him out. So here we find that on First uh, Samuel 15. So God said to Samuel to give clear instructions to, uh, to Saul. And we a lot of times ask, man, I wish God would just tell me what he wants me to do. I don't think so. God actually told him exactly what he wants him to do, and he didn't. And then it's kind of like, why didn't you do what he said? God kind of tells us what he wants to do, and then we can kind of actually use the same arguments that Saul used in our own heads and feel kind of justified. But when he tells you directly and you disobey, it's kind of different. So check out his next section where after he came back, not following.
So I would say that's definitely in the calling out category. He told them, don't take anything. Kill everyone. Kill the king. And, well, I followed it. And why am I hearing sheep? Well, the soldiers brought them. And uh, we brought them to sacrifice to the Lord. We brought back the king so that we could, you know, it's, that's not what God said to do. But how many times do I do that? And without a prophet telling me directly what to do, it's kind of, yeah, I did sacrifice that for them. Yeah, why throw this stuff away? It's The church could really use the money. And it's so often when God doesn't tell us directly that it's actually kind of a little easier to deal with. So when you pray for clarity on your vision, make sure you're really willing to obey it 100%. Uh, Nathan also, I will go quickly over, the, over, over these ones, also had to call David out with Bathsheba. Basically, David killed Uriah the Hittite because he wanted uh, his wife, committed adultery and murder, and thought he was getting away with it. God sends another prophet, another kind of job, where he had to actually call him out and say, dude, he kind of told the story about the sheep and stuff, which I have on here, but we're kind of running low on time. So you get out of that a little bit. But basically, um, he was going to, like, David's was going to have the sword, the sword in his family forever. Uh, never depart from your house because you despise me. So God really came down hard on David through Nathan. But would you say that God loves David? David's a man after God's own heart. I think as far as I know, that's the only person in the Bible that that says that of. And of a man over of God's own heart, he really came down on him really hard and called him out on what he was doing because God was not content to see David living like he shouldn't, living all rusty. Uh, actually, we skipped that one. Sorry. Uh, this next one's uh, New Testament. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's you Sunday. It's kind of got to be a little loose. It was getting, it was going too smooth. The spirit, the spirit saved part is the what's what's cool. Kind of gives a little insight. Paul was just not personally mad at the guy. He loved him and he longed for his restoration. But he also knew that the cancer, rust, whatever you want to refer to it, had to be cut out of the church because it spreads. And that text, most people don't think of it, is actually an example of Paul being loving. Most of us don't really think of it that way. I don't think that's the kind of love that the Beatles were talking about either. It's kind of the new love in our culture is replaced by tolerance. If you just don't ever rub anybody the wrong way, you're loving. If you put up with everybody where they're at and never say anything or call them on anything, that's what love is to our culture. 
Intolerance is called hate. But calling out is not tolerance. And accepting something like God doesn't tolerate us the way that we are. So that's kind of goes kind of against the, as John would talk about, the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. One's down here, one's up there. Tolerance as the form of love is down here. Sacrifice and, and building people up and restoration is kingdom of God. I will have to go actually quick through that. Thank you, Dustin. I will skip some of these ones. The cool thing is, is like, Jesus is awesome. He's able to call people out and up at the same time. Like on the, uh, the woman at the well, he, she, he basically talks to a Samaritan woman, which Jews did not talk to. They didn't talk to women or Samaritans. And kind of told her, yeah, you have a bunch of husbands, and the one that you're living with isn't your husband. You've had five. And she actually left there and went to, back to the city, and it's like, oh, man, the one who's the Christ is here. So that thing that's cool is the, he called her out on her lifestyle and where she was, but he also called her up. The, fact to know, the thing to really notice on that story is that the woman left Jesus empowered. She left there excited, going and telling all the villagers everything about it. Come see this dude, man. You've got to come check this out. She didn't left there beat down. Same as when they, uh, the woman was getting stoned for adultery, the Pharisees all brought her, and when Jesus kind of wrote in the sand and said, whoever is without sin, throw the first stone. He, she didn't leave beat up. And she was called out, but it was to be called up. The purpose of calling out has to lead to up anyway. That's kind of what sanctification is. That's a Christian word for it. It's God calling us up until we are eventually like Jesus. It's going to take our whole lifetime to do it, and we'll never get there fully in this life, but the whole lifetime is, a, is God making us more and more Christ-like as we age, as we learn, removing more of those things that are us, putting more and more of the things that are, that are Him. If you call people out without calling them up, it's not love. The goal is restoration, not you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. It's not like the police. My final example of Jesus doing both up and out is with the denial, Peter's denial of Christ. That's found in Matthew, where basically Jesus says, many are gonna, you're going to fall away, and Peter's like, no way, Lord, not me. I won't ever do it. I won't do it. Like, you've got to love Peter's enthusiasm. A few verses later, we see the, it being uh, fulfilled. Peter called down curses, I don't know the man, and then the rooster crowed. And then Peter goes out and weeps bitterly. Frequently calling out leads to people going outside and weeping bitterly. It leads to that period of mourning, that period of I got nothing, that period of that place of uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, knowing that you can't. But then what? You just don't, where do you go when you're broken? That's what's cool. The next part, we see Jesus filling this out. Here's where he calls Peter up. This is after the whole crucifixion and everything. Peter is uh, meeting with Jesus, and Jesus is doing the Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he says that three times. And at the end, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. 
Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death with, with, by with which Peter would glorify God. So here was a guy that ran away in front of a servant girl, people that weren't very respected in Jewish community. He denied Christ in front of a, like a servant girl. And then now Jesus is saying, you're going to die for me. That's definitely calling him out on like, dude, you're going to deny me. Oh, no, no way. No, dude. But And it's also calling him up, seeing that that guy who ran away from a, a young girl around a fire is going to actually die for me and be led where he doesn't want to go. Like how Jesus saw that in him and how Jesus wasn't just like mad that it's like, dude, come on. I mean, I understand the soldiers with the swords and everything, and it was cool that you busted out your sword and cut off the guy's ear, but, like, I mean, you said, hey, like, remember when Peter said this? Remember that? Yeah, sure you did. I mean, at least kind of rib him a little on it, but nope. That's what's really cool about Jesus is he always has up as his main goal if he ever does call out. And the thing to note, too, is most of the people he called out were the religious people. So are, are we getting clear on the question? Would you rather be loved or feel loved? Are you willing to allow yourself to be loved by God and others? If the answer is feel loved, you will have a very shallow and empty life, but you may be comfortable. If the answer is be loved, get ready for some wax on and wax off. And we will end with the inverse part of the question. So that kind of helps to focus the question when you kind of look at it from the, back, the opposite way. Would you rather love or feel loving? Would you rather be the person that actually invests in other people's lives and calls them up and out, or is that too much work? God is willing to invest his time, his resources, and his energy in you. Are you willing to be the hands of God and invest your time and resources, which are actually God's because he invested them in you first? Are you willing to share that and invest in other people? Now, here's another way of putting it. Do you want to give to charity or be charitable? People generally like charity. You really won't find anyone getting mad at someone who gives to charity. They don't have to be Christians, heathens, completely materialistic, secular, as bad as you can get, watches even all the bad movies. Those people are kind of down with charity. No one was really ever hung on a cross for giving to charity. But it's when you join with the weak and go against the system that it really starts to rub people the wrong way. Kind of like shining lights on cockroaches. I'm going to end with a really cool quote from the late Catholic Bishop Dom Helder Camara. When I fed the hungry, they called me a saint. When I asked why people are hungry, they called me a communist. Feeding the hungry is all cool. It's something you do on, like in an hour before you go out to lunch. You just kind of show up and dish something out. But when you're like, why are there? And it's something that requires energy and a long-term commitment. Uh, 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 uh. We don't really want really a part of that. So hopefully that this week you can kind of think on that question because it really determines how your life will lead. If you really want to really be loved or is love just that nice word you like to throw around? Because it does make us feel warm and fuzzy. But real love eventually leads to fuzzy, not necessarily warm, but it's kind of a, a little a tough, tough road ahead on that. We are, we are, we are